Welcome to Entsplofredings podcast, Monographic Happy Hour. These episodes are based on the recordings of the Monographic Happy Hour events, which the Anthropological Association of Denmark co-host with the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University. The aim of the events is to honor the classic anthropological genre, the monograph. So if you were not able to attend the event or if you missed a detail, we are glad to take you back for an interesting afternoon in the name of anthropology. In this episode, you will meet Professor Rane Villerslev presenting his monograph called Soul Hunters, Hunting Animism and Personhood Among the Siberian Yukagiers. Critical comments and questions are given by Associate Professor and Senior Lecturer from the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University, Inger Sjørslev. The event was chaired by Estel Oberborbeck Andersen, who here welcomes both audiences and key speakers. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and all other beings present. Um, my name is Estel Oberborbeck Andersen. I, and on behalf of Entrepreneurforening, I would like to welcome you all and thank you for making space in your afternoons and in this spring weather to come join us this afternoon. We have two very special anthropologists as guests today, both eager to discuss this book, Soul Hunters, Hunting Animism and Personhood Among the Siberian Yukagiers. We have Rane Villerslev as author and Inger Sjørslev as discussant and critical counterpart. Soul Hunters, the focus of today's talk, was published in 2007 by University of California Press. Its author, Arne Villerslev, has lived and carried out ethnographic fieldwork in Siberia on numerous occasions since when, Rane? Since 1991. Yeah. 1991. Hmm. So I start? Okay. You start? Yes, okay. Uh, okay, I'll just uh, throw my jacket into uh, a little hot. Um, no, I think uh, I mean I'm very glad that you invited me, and um, I thought what a what a privilege to uh, come here and uh, discuss one's own work. That's a real privilege, so I couldn't say no. Uh, and uh, it's a book that is very important to me for various reasons. I mean, basically, it's my first publication ever. It reflects many years of uh, research. Also, prior to being an anthropologist, I went to Siberia on the search for these Yukagiers who are a very small uh, group of, uh, of hunters in northeastern Siberia. And actually, I, I got to uh, know about them at the National Museum because there there was an ethnographer called uh, uh, Rolf Gilbert, uh, who is now uh, on pension, I think. But uh, as a young man, after high school, I went there together with my brother and said, we really want to go to Siberia, could you help us? And at that time, people actually had some time at the National Museum to help other people. So. He said, yeah, well, how interesting. Take a look at this book. And, and, and the book was an, an old monograph called The Yukagir and the Yukagai Chungus. And that's the only book published on, on the Yukagir people. And it was published in uh, 1926. But the fieldwork uh, on the basis of the book was done at the uh, end of the 1800s by a, a Russian uh, anthropologist called Valdemar Jorgensen, who became part of Hans Boas. And you probably don't know, but Franz Boas had a grand project financed by by a project called the Jessup North Pacific Expeditions, Expe, Expedition. Sorry, and uh, and the point was to try to locate the cultural and racial connections over the Bering Strait 
it was a huge project, uh, and uh, a lot of Boa's own work uh, among the Northwest Coast Indians and uh, his work on the Eskimo was carried out as part of that uh, grant project. And he hired uh, two anthropologists uh, from Russia called Jokelson and Bogoras to do fieldwork among the indigenous uh, populations of uh, the Siberian Northeast. And it ended up in a, a number of, uh, of volumes on, on various uh, groups, including the Yukigir. Uh, and but according, I mean, you can see why this was never synthesized into a, an actual conclusion, because that would work against uh, Boas's uh, theoretical project, which was which was the introduction of the particular study of particular cultures. Yeah. So, but it left these amazing monographs that, in 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 the kind of the spirit of that time. Uh, it describes everything, the culture from A to Z. You know, uh, it uh, it has uh, uh, you know descriptions of material culture and wonderful drawings and photographs, and religious lives and so forth. And but these two the two Russian scholars placed it within an evolutionary framework. But it's a very sort of honest account. And and actually, some of these books are, are later looked upon as some of the best ethnographies ever published. I mean, these, they were exiles, uh, Jogginson and Bogoras were exiles. Uh, uh, you know, there's a long tradition for, uh, for sending people to Siberia that goes way before Stalin. Uh, so uh, these people were, these two were, uh, belonged to a communist group, almost anarchist group, and the Tsar wouldn't like, uh, didn't want to deal with it, so he sent them to Siberia and they had nothing to do. So they learned the local languages and started studying these people and wrote these wonderful monographs, uh, including this one. But uh, then uh, my brother and I went uh, twice to Siberia where we were, thrown, uh, uh, we were taken by a helicopter and dumped in the wilderness with canoe and guns. And, uh, and we had uh, cards that was before Google Earth in, in the uh, one, to, one to a million. Uh, so it was sort of military maps, that, uh, that you, American military maps, and, and they included included villages that didn't exist. And we searched for these Yukagirs, yeah, for two years, and we couldn't find them. Uh, and, uh, and then on the third uh, year in 93, we actually located an old man on the, on the riverbank, and uh, he said, I'm a, yeah, I'm a Yukagir. And, uh, and then we uh, found the Yukagir, and uh, it became a very intimate relationship with these people. Um, that uh, involved uh, one of the, and it was just after the Russian, uh, Soviet uh, uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, and, and like other Siberian groups, they were thrown into a new situation, um, uh, and I would say a much worse situation, because um, uh, you have to imagine that Siberia, at the, uh, at the end of the Soviet, uh, uh, time of the Soviet Empire, in many ways was, uh, was similar to, uh, to Greenland. Uh, there were a lot of uh, food stuff that was transported from central Russia, canned food, even wines that you couldn't find in, uh, in Moscow and St. Petersburg were transported out there because the Soviet Union had a policy for, uh, for developing these areas. And they also had a particular ethnic uh, policy on ethnicity that was kind of uh, self-contradictory, but basically included that, that these minorities should be uh, supported in particular ways, and the Yukagir were of, of particular interest to the Soviet uh, project because they were looked upon as being the most original hunter-gatherers of Siberia, and thereby 
they had the most survivals from, uh, you know, from uh, uh, what you call like uh, uh, archaic communism. Uh, so they had actually lived uh, really well, and they had been very well paid as hunters. Uh, sable, the trade in sable fur were supported, were supported heavily by the Soviet government because it was an export. Of, uh, it was an, uh, it was an item for export. Um, but suddenly, when the system collapsed, uh, all these uh, all the food stuff um, collapsed with it. And, and uh, they were thrown back to a lifestyle uh, of their grandparents, uh, basically. Uh, I mean, you have to imagine a situation where you live as you do now, and suddenly you have to live from one day to the next, you have to live the lifestyle of your great-great-great-grandparents. Uh, the school system collapsed, the food stuff was not there, um, no, no wages, there was nothing. And, and it became overnight a, com a, a complete subsistence-based economy. Uh, and on top of that, uh, it was a mafia uh, company that controlled the fur trade. And in my naivety, I uh, came there and saw how terrible they lived and thought, well, uh, perhaps I could uh, help uh, and they, uh, I would develop um, anti-explaining, I don't know the English word for that, but a cooperative uh, that you find in Denmark where they control uh, their own resources and they could send their sable fur to the Danish fur auction houses and get the profit. What I had not taken into account is that there's something called the Russian Mafia, and they were actually sitting uh, on that trade. So it, it, uh, it changed my fieldwork completely, uh, because uh, suddenly there was an, uh, they put an arrest on me, and I, I, I was transported into uh, the forest, to the wilderness. And first I stayed there for three months uh, with a young uh, hunter, a Yakut, another ethnic group, uh, in a cabin there, uh, waiting, for, um, waiting for things to settle down. Uh, and there we almost starved to death. It was, uh, it was, on the one hand, a very exciting uh, time and wonderful time when I look back at it, but also a tremendously stressful uh, time. And, uh, and then later on, uh, the police were still, uh, uh, still uh, uh, wanting to arrest me. Uh, I was transported to an old Yukagir man, Spiridon Spiridonov, who is on the front page of the book. And there I live, then I lived with his, him and his group for six more months. So most of, of the book, a lot of the information is actually based on very few people <laughs> and a lot of animals <laughs> that we hunted. <laughs> then I returned to the village later on because uh, it, it was the, prop, uh, the conflict was settled and uh, they uh, took away the arrest uh, order on me and then I ret returned to the village and I completed my fieldwork. Uh, but most of the fieldwork was was uh, done in this, uh, under these uh, very stressful uh, circumstances. But what is tremendously important in terms of ethnographic insight is that no one had lived with Siberian hunters in the wilderness. And it's a type of knowledge you can't, and I'm sure some of you will recognize it, you can't talk, to, uh, talk with these people about spirits and stuff in the abstract. It's simply not conceived of in, in abstract terms. You, uh, you, you, uh, if, insofar you talk about it at all, you do it f uh, when something co concrete is happening, you know. So uh, the stuff I'm writing about in the book, you could not have had access to if you hadn't lived, if I hadn't lived in the wilderness with these people out there. Uh, but it became a very male-focused uh, view of, of, of the world, of course. I mean, I did create uh, very intimate relations with, uh, with certain females uh, in the village as well, uh, elderly uh, females and stuff. But... But the world I describe is very male-focused because 
the Soviet system created a system where you know males were hunting in the forest while the females were were in the village uh, doing clean jobs as school teachers and uh, uh, yeah administrative work and stuff. So there was a real split uh, between the genders, and actually the females didn't want to marry the the male hunters that they regarded as uneducated uh, and uneducated proletariat. Uh, they preferred Russian men, but these Russian men left and had already left this area at the time. So a lot of the children being born in the village were actually with uh, Russian men, but, but, but it's a very flexible uh, system, uh, and these children are just incorporated into Yukagir life, as Yukagir. Uh, I mean, it's... They don't define uh, the, the Yubiki identity in terms of language or blood. They define it primarily through your activity. So if you're a hunter, you're a Yukagir. If you're a reindeer herder, you're an Evan. Uh, and if you ca uh, are cow, uh, 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 horse and uh, cow breeder, you're a Yakut. And you can actually switch between them and change identity accordingly uh, what you're engaging at the moment there. So, um, but uh, but and then uh, finally, it was an exciting. It's a it, well, it's an important work for me because it was. I did my PhD in Cambridge, and um, and Morten Axel Peterson, that you probably know, he he was uh, one year ahead of me, and um, and his gen. I mean, Vivius de Castro, Eduardo Vivius de Castro, had visited uh, Cambridge the year before I started, and had he had put into motion and and a new way of thinking anthropology. At that time, it was very dominated by, uh, by the crisis of the 80s, uh, uh, I would say. And, uh, well, you had started moving out of the, of the writing culture crisis, uh, and you had, you had uh, the first move out of that had been through phenomenology. And uh, suddenly, Eduardo Vivius de Castro came, and he kind of made a whole, uh, well, a radical view on what anthropology, of, of what classical anthropology could do. And, uh, and uh, I became very influenced by that, but before that, I had been highly influenced by uh, uh, Tim Ingold because I had did my master's in, in Manchester, and he had influenced my way of thinking. And uh, I think the book is, uh, is, is interesting, seen as a kind of... It's, a, it's not an ontological book, really, uh, but it, it, it actually addresses a lot of the questions that uh, the ontological turn... Uh, has addressed, but it it does that more through, I would say, a, a, a phenomenological, uh, uh, yeah, uh, approach. Having said that, I think what uh, what was important about the time in Cambridge uh, at that point was that there was an openness, a playfulness, a theoretical playfulness, playfulness at work that I had never experienced before. I mean, you could try all kinds of weird things, uh, and it was actually, I mean, if you, later on, I would say that the, the, what, what went wrong about the ontological turn was that it, it tried to systematize something that was basically, had evolved out of a very playful, uh, yeah, a, a kind of, a playful approach to finding the boundaries of our own field. We constantly search for the boundaries. How could who could make the most surprising interpretation? That was that was the uh, type of environment. Yeah, uh, and uh, and for those of you who have uh, read the book, you would see that yeah, uh, 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 there's a whole bunch of 
theoretical approaches that I draw on, which is very much in the spirit of that time in Cambridge. I draw on uh, Heidegger, but I Engel, but I also draw on Lacan, and I, I draw on various forms of psychology and and so forth. And um, and I think uh, I I remember that time as being uh, the most playful time in in my <laughs> well. It, it was an amazing time because it was so it was so open-ended and it was uh, so um, liberal in its uh, in its approach. And I think uh, I, I like I like a lot of what the ontologists are doing, but but I think the problem has been the moment you try to systematize it and turn it into something of a particular kind, you kill that very uh, playful approach that it, that existed prior to its. Uh, Prior to, prior to the ontological turn being established as a, a turn, if you would like, yeah. So uh, I think on that note I will uh, stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Rane. Thank you for inviting me, Astrid. Um, I actually wrote a manuscript, but I suspected that I wasn't going to use it, and I don't think I will, really. But maybe just to get me started, you already said a lot of things yourself about the ontological mm. approach. Mm. And I also more or less suspected that that might happen. Mm. So uh, my criticism mm. of that uh, mm. disappears maybe. Uh, mm. But I, I, you have it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. But I couldn't, I thought, what well, I have to say right away that this book, which I read thoroughly mm. during Easter, I mm. had written it before, mm. uh, read it before. Mm when I had to write something about it, but, but not as, as well as now. It's a book that I really like. Mm. I really like it. I'm mm. almost dare to say that I, I, I love it. I think mm -hmm. it's a beautiful piece <laughs> of uh, anthropology, ethnography, precisely the way it should be. Mm. It's lived experience. It's good analysis. It's well-written. It's uh, engaging. What it maybe doesn't do, well, yeah. I see it as firmly grounded within mm. the best of our paradigm of anthropology. Mm. And this is mm. what I wanted maybe to teach you a little mm. bit with, mm. but I can already hear mm. my own, uh, the power seeving out mm. of, my, of my provocation here, because mm. I, would, I wanted to say it's not all that wide. Mm. Mm. And of course, mm. 10, 11 years have passed, mm. or maybe more, mm. since you wrote it. Mm. Um, and the ontological approaches, mm. the phenomenological mm. approach, uh, has become uh, well known to mm. all of most of mm. us. Uh, so maybe it's that mm. I can I I, I can mm. truly appreciate that that th there's playfulness mm. in it, mm. and I understand. And you know the the, the approach by Viveros de Castro on mm. personhood, perspectivism. Mm. Um, it did um, provoke us when mm. we first mm. heard about mm. it. Mm. Uh, but in the meantime, it's mm. become a bit of a, yeah. Mm, yeah. a little bit misused. And as yeah. you said, when you put things yeah. into boxes, yeah. uh, its yeah. playfulness power so yeah. it disappears. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, the book. Mm. Let's yeah. talk about the book, yeah. because that's what we're here yeah. for. Um, when I read it with this uh, purpose of today, mm. I thought, I think we're going to talk about shamanism. Mm. Mm. 
but and we can mm. if you if you want yeah, to. Yeah, we can. Yeah. Uh, but when when I read the chapter, mm. I mm. actually I didn't think there was so much mm. to it. It's, it's mm. pretty straightforward mm. that the shamans are, or you say that mm. shamanism is about getting things done. Mm. Mm. And uh, the way the hunters, who mm. are the absolute mm. uh, main characters mm. in, in your book, the way they act is already sort of part of the way to, to shamanism. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's the foundation of shamanism itself. Yeah. I mean, that, it, it, this, uh, that shamanism is actually like uh, an iceberg where the, the shamans with all their fancy clothing and drums are just the tip of an iceberg. That goes much deeper, yeah. So it's uh, shame. I think shamanism is grounded in hunting. Okay. I, I really think so. I mean, uh, uh, I know it's not uh, particularly popular in anthropology to talk about origins, but I think that shamanism has originated in hunting. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt that uh, <coughs> hunting is uh, is our uh, is the way we uh, has had a tremendous importance for 95% um, of our time on the planet. You know. And I think shamanism is is a type of hunting just as well as it's a type of warfare and stuff. But it's uh, you in, in Siberia you have had you have actually overlooked what you call family shamanism, which is a kind of which is not the you know the, the type of shamanism that we think about when we talk about Siberia is the one with all their spectacular clothing and stuff. But there's reason to believe that as is a very late uh, phenomenon that was created as part of the colonial, um, uh, 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 well, the horrors of colonialism, because it, uh, it, 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 it gave way to all these epidemics. And a lot of, you have to imagine that it's the same situation as in the Americans, where the great majority of the population actually dies from diseases, yeah? And out of the ashes, are these sort of spectacular, uh, spectacular shamans created that are mostly, uh, whose main uh, job is to try to uh, fight these diseases. But underneath that, you have the much more sort of mundane type of shamanism, yeah? Uh, with uh, this, like the grandmother who imitates a moose when they are starving, you know, and then the little boy has to shoot her in the heart and she's imitating the dying moose and stuff. These kind of things, yeah, and they are never described. I mean, not in the literature either, you know, because they were, and they continued to be practiced way into the Soviet era, you know, um, yeah, whereas Stalin killed all the spectacular ones very quickly, you know. Um, uh, so, uh, so I think there's an intimate connection between, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, yeah, the hunting, because what they are practicing, the hunters are, it is a type of shamanism. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, it, it's just linked to practical, Activity, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of it. When you imitate a moose, it sounds like crazy. They imitate a moose to make it give itself to, uh, out of love to the hunter. But actually, it works. I mean, there's no difference between, uh, you know, the cosmological uh, setup and the uh, practicality of, of the event itself. Yeah? So I think, uh, yeah, anyways. Yeah, yeah but, no, that's uh, fine, because mm. that, that might, uh, mm. we might take that further mm. into, I guess, what is my... Mm. My main, my, my, I don't know, but uh, mm. yeah, the most important question for mm. me to ask in in mm. in your book is this thing about uh, well, yeah, it is mm. perspectivism, mm. it's the idea of personhood, mm. it's the transformations of the hunters, mm. 
And I do understand, and mm. I, I also, it's fine, mm. that you say this is ontologically true. Mm. It is not, mm. you have the critique in the mm. beginning of the mm. book, that this is not like old school anthropology and as if thing. Mm. It's, yeah. not, it's not that they represent themselves as a moose, mm. an elk, mm. an animal. Mm. They are, mm. they really transform. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but... Mm. Um, yeah, I, I I did learn a lot from the mm. ontological way mm. of thinking. It mm. has really kept me going mm. intellectually mm. in later years. But also because I have this reservation mm. about it, mm. and I cannot quite find out mm. where it lies. Mm. Mm. But I think that one one important uh, motive for me to be a little mm. reserved about it is that I am so very fond of. Mm. This is a subjective statement. Mm. Uh, as if behavior mm. Mm. in social mm. life, you know, mm. the the this, the fact that you you know which kind of context you're in, yeah. which kind of framework is set up. It can be a ritual. It can be performative. Mm. It can be even mm. these little things in daily life. But you know which key are we playing mm. in here? Mm. 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 And that I think is a type of communication. Mm. Mm. with Bainstonian yeah. inspiration yeah, yeah, and yeah, all yeah. That, yeah. that, that you can only do if you have this as if mm. idea. Mm. Mm. And I think that your mm. book mm. is full of mm. examples mm. of how this uh, perspectivism mm. transformation of subjects is contextual, yeah. circumstantial. Yeah. You say it yourself, yeah. you write it, you, you uh, quote old Spiridon here, mm who says, um, do you think I'm crazy? Yeah. When you ask him if he yeah. thinks animals, are people. animals uh, are people. No, no. no, he doesn't think animals are people. Mm. Mm. So he thinks maybe, maybe mm. he does, mm. maybe he doesn't, yeah. that animals are people when he goes hunting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, well, yeah. I guess my question is, yeah. is hunting a ritual? Is it yeah. a particular, you don't do so much about yeah. ritual in the book, no. and that's fine, yeah. but yeah. is in which way or isn't it, this is mm. a rhetorical mm. question, a particular framework yeah. in which people know that yeah. they are now yeah. entering yeah. into mm. another yeah. kind of subjectivity. Yeah. 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 And don't they, in so many other mm. situations, um, yeah. play around with communication yeah. forms? Yeah. It's, like a good, it's a good question, but I think uh, I, I mean back. I think there's important uh, nuances here. I mean, I think what makes this argument very different from the ontological argument is that onto uh, the ontological turn talks in absolutes. Mm. Actually, they they it 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 destroys uh, a very important insight from anthropology, namely the liminal, mm -hmm. because it can't deal with the liminal. I mean, you are either this or you are either that. Yeah. You jump in between closed ontological worlds that cannot meet. And I think that is essentially what is uh, uh, why I can't describe to it. <laughs> so uh, having said that, uh, I think, uh, so I'm not talking about uh, absolutes at all. I'm talking, I'm using Schreckner's actually theatrical met, uh, no, metaphor. Right. This is about, I'm not a moose, but I'm also not not a moose. Yes. But I think what is different from, uh, uh, what makes that argument different from symbolic uh, anthropology, which I think you can, you can ascribe to the as-if behavior, 
is that uh, I think it's much more powerful to talk about it in other terms than in as if I think you it's much more powerful to talk about it in terms of uh, uh, the, uh, the imaginary, for instance, like Lacan talks about. I mean, there's a lot of problems with Lacan and the, his stages, but you can take the content of the mirror stage. The mirror stage is a stage where you, where he talks about the child being incapable of, of differentiating clearly between himself and, and an image. And it's, it's, more, it's not an as if, the child is not, talk, is not well, Lacan talks about it as if he's not cap the child is not capable of making that absolute distinction. Yeah. Because you can only do that in the symbolic phase where you basically enter the world of Levi Strauss, you know, and language and total differentiations and stuff like that. And but, but the point is that these people do not, what is similar to the uh, mirror uh, stage, or this, I, I uh, rather call it the imaginary, because that's another word for the mirror stage. It's not a stage, it's a condition. Mm. And for Lacan it's a condition yeah. as well, it's yeah. just, uh, and it haunts us our whole life. But, but the point is that you, not, you do not make an as if, it's just the experience of your body being other than yourself. So, I mean, when you play tennis and suddenly your hand is doing something weird, you know, and uh, it, 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 it feels it's an embodied experience of, of an agency that you do not control. Mm. And, and I think that is a much more powerful uh, way of, of trying to say what anthropologists have talked about in terms of symbolic terms as if behavior, you know. Uh, because they don't different. It's not that they make a clear differentiation, and it's not the case that they are jumping between closed ontological worlds. It is a liminal. It is a liminal stage, but it's trying to find words for for talking about this liminal stage that is not put into words. By the way, I mean, which is a precondition for making it symbolic in the first place, and talking about it as if they don't put it into words. It's a physical, bodily thing, and the moment you put on an animal skin. You become something else, but 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 my point is that you do not fully become yeah. the moose. You are constant. I mean, you have this double perspective, you know, where you're con you're constantly you are engaged in in uh, in in a moose behavior, but you are uh, you are consciously aware of being different from the moose, which is a precondition for killing it. Yeah. So you are. At, it's a it's a liminal it's a liminal it's a liminal stage. But it's the question is how do we talk about this liminality in the most powerful way? I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's okay. I cannot mm. really. I yeah. don't have any anything to complain about. There. But uh, <laughs> yeah. mm. but I I'm I get uh, being yeah. a little bit a sucker for the social. Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm mm. I love the chapter where you talk about the stories they tell mm. and mm. the the point you have about mm. coming back from the hunt. Yeah. Uh, your argument is I hope I get yeah. it right. Yeah. Is that they tell hunting stories. Yes. But and other. Uh, scholars have interpreted those hunting stories as uh, telling sort yeah. of an educational, yeah, yeah. telling about the map, we went there, we hunted mm, there, the mm, geography and mm, so on. And you say, no, no, that's mm, not the point. Mm, uh, the, ho the point is, it doesn't matter what they no, tell actually. Exactly. Uh, the point is that telling yeah, the stories, yeah. talk and smell, you yeah. say, are the indicators of being human. Yeah. And it's a re-entering. You even yeah. use Fanchinep. Yeah. So we yeah. have a little. Yeah. Um, a re-entering into the social world. Yeah. Uh, exactly. By being human. Yeah. And I thought that that made yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and it was really, really interesting that. because all these uh, interpretations of hunting stories have been that they have had some 
form of other evolutionary aspect to them. So, you know, it's because humans have been successful compared with other animals because they've had language, you know, to share knowledge. And then I realized, I mean, they, these people talk three different languages, yeah? And like Old Spiridon would sit and speak in Yukagir knowing that no one would understand him. So it's like, what kind of knowledge is transmitted here? And the point is that it's not really what people are, 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 are telling because that is transmitted through imitation and uh, experience, yeah? It's the fact that they talk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that they constantly talk, you know, as a way of transforming themselves, yeah. yeah. Actually, so, I could mm. relate to some of that from mm. a totally different context. Mm. Uh, the Candomblé people in Brazil who mm. sometimes talk, speak, mm. they speak Portuguese, but there's a mm. lot of Yoruba that mm. nobody understands mm. coming into their discourses and it doesn't mm. really matter, and mm. or it matters, yeah. but in a different way. It's not language as referential, it's mm. language as, mm. you could say, a speech. Yeah, language. yeah, exactly. Even so, even yeah. so, I couldn't help yeah. having this vision when yeah. I read about the stories. Yeah. Um, the listeners, who listens yeah. to this? Yeah. And I guess yeah. some of the, the who's the audience? Yeah. Some are y younger, yeah. children, maybe younger hunters? Yeah, younger and hunters, yeah. Women? No, no women there. No women? No women, no. Okay, uh, that's a pity. Uh, but most people, most of the time, people are sleeping while someone is talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, so, uh, I mean, you kind of drop in and out. I mean, you can sit and listen a bit, and then you just start sleeping and the other one keeps that. talking, you know, I mean, yeah. yeah. So I just ask, I started asking myself, why does he keep talking when no one is listening, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there is the old woman you talk to, yeah. but it is a bit yeah. different. Yeah. And that's about dreams, that's another yeah. really, yeah. really nice and yeah. very potent chapter, I think, with a lot of things you could pursue yeah. about learning and dreaming. Yeah. And... <laughs> You have this old woman telling you a dream yeah. that she was in a dream told to go upriver yeah. and uh, and there in some particular place she would find something yeah. and what she found was then a huge penis. Yeah. And then the next day, and she laughs, yeah. that's the yeah, point, she, she laughs, laughs yeah, when she yeah, tells yeah. it. Yeah. And then the next day, uh, your point is that the next day she goes there with her mm. husband and they find the place, and mm. where the penis was supposed mm. to be, there's mm. a moose. Yeah. And they can yeah. kill it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why does she laugh? Yeah, yeah. Is it just because yeah. it's embarrassment yeah. that it's a sexual thing? Yeah, or yeah. is it? Yeah. Or isn't, is it or isn't it not mm. <laughs> that she is more Freudian than yeah. Lacanian yeah. right here? Yes. And so that yeah, yeah, yeah. she is yeah. conscious or she's yeah. playing with these yeah. different layers yeah. of understanding yeah, yeah. and interpretation. Yeah, yeah. I think that it, why she yeah, laughs? No, I think, I, think uh, I mean, they laugh a lot, these mm. people. And actually, they're tremendously uh, humorous and, um, and much more so than uh, their neighboring reindeer herders. So the moment you get private property, something about laughter disappears. I mean, they are. All, I mean, the the, uh, the herders uh, that surround these people uh, are con completely stone-faced, and uh, and there's no uh, laughter in, in, especially not in relation to uh, religious things. Whereas these people are laughing constantly. And what I did not write in the book because it didn't fit into my theory 
but I dealt with it li later on, was this amazing story where I, I went bear hunting uh, with a couple of Yukigir men, and then there's a very, there's a very elaborate ritual uh, uh, when, when you kill a bear, yeah? So you start saying, uh, grandfather, it was not me who killed you, it was a Russian who killed you. <laughs> and uh, when you take off the skin, you say, grandfather, you must f f uh, feel warm, I'll take off your skin and, um, or your jacket, and so forth. And the whole point is to sort of under-communicate under the violence, yeah? The violent aspect. Uh, and there's a, a bunch of mythology that talks about all the horrors that happens if you break the etiquette, yeah? And then I'm out with these two hunters, and uh, while one is, uh, we have killed this bear, and one is stabbing out its eyes uh, of the dead bear, saying, ka, ka, like a raven, yeah, so we can't see who is uh, chopping it up. And the other one is building a tableau for the bones. It, they have to be cleaned. And then suddenly the guy who's building the thing shouts to the other hunter who's stabbing out the eyes, uh, imitating a raven, says, grandfather, don't believe it. It's not a raven sticking out your eyes. It's actually Nikolai Vasilievich. <laughs> and then the hunter that's sticking out your eyes, that's like, Ugh. And then they start laughing, uh, both of them, you know, uh, extensively, yeah? And, um, and, uh, and, um, and then the, uh, the, guy, the older guy who stepped out the eyes says, oh, don't stop this, uh, you know, go and build the, go and finish the ritual, yeah? But they keep laughing while uh, saying this. And, and my, the world of Eduardo Viris de Castro collapses at that moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because here I'm out, you know, I to like take that. these people like seriously. <laughs> and they don't even take their own religious I, beliefs seriously, you know? So it's like, oh, what happened? And therefore I didn't bring it into the book because it was like a misfit, you know? But, but, but it haunted me, and I, in the end, I dealt with it. And, um, and the deal is, of course, that it's not a question that they don't believe in, um, in spirits. It's, uh, first, I thought, is it because, they, is it because of that? Uh, it's because uh, these are tremendously egalitarian people. I mean, yeah. immensely egalitarian. And, uh, and, uh, and that includes uh, spirits as well, that they don't allow anything to take... Uh, Total authority, and and la I mean, so one point is that through laughter you you actually undermine. Uh, I mean, you laugh at the gods basically. Mm -hmm. You ridicule the gods as you would ridicule anyone who who puts himself up on a pedestal. Yeah? Uh, but the other thing is that uh, they realize, of course, what I think what many of us uh, as anthropologists have realized that life happens between rules and and what you have to do. You break the rules all the time. Mm. I mean, that's what you, you know, the inside of Bourdieu, you know. Uh, and, but whereas uh, other cultures uh, sort of uh, try to suppress this fact, they expose it, but they expose it through laughter. You know, that life happens between rules and, and actual living. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and the third thing is that, uh, because I'm writing with Morton uh, Nilsson on this right now, actually, uh, on uh, humor, because uh, what is interesting about humor is that it's built up by a setup and a punchline. And what you basically do in humor is that you bring two things together that have no, uh, that cannot, by the nature, fit together. And that's what makes it humorous. But the moment you do that, the moment you laugh, your viewpoint is actually transported a place where, uh, where the power of humor is that you can never see a phenomenon the same way as you saw it uh, prior to your laughter, but the problem, uh, but the, the insight is that it, it reveals a type of uh, truths or insights 
that can only last as long as you laugh. Mm. So it's not the type of insight that can enter the history books, no. but, it can, it, but it kind of twists uh, the world in a particular way, in a particular moment, and, uh, and the moment you've stopped laughing, the insight is gone, yeah? But, but it, la it, it, it lasts by the fact that you can never see the phenomenon in the same way before. And it would be interesting to, to study various uh, forms of humor uh, around the world because um, these people here are, what, what characterizes it is they, they are laughing all the time. They really are. But when you go to the neighboring Chukchi that I've spent uh, more than a year with as well, I mean, you, you hardly ever hear them laugh. I mean, uh, tremendously serious, you know. And uh, it's, it's very interesting why that is. But I think it's, part of, it's a part of an egalitarian structure, yeah? Uh, and it's it's part of a, a society for whom uh, this about uh, it's a, 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 it's a matter of fact dealing with paradoxes, you know, yeah. rather than erasing them out, you know, uh, to create a, a sort of perfection. Mm -hmm. There's no need for perfection in this world, really. Uh, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, the next yeah. book should be about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There won't be time to write that one. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, no, that's yeah. Well, maybe someday. Yeah. You don't have too much time, and uh, it's very exciting, but we should yeah. give the audience yeah. a chance to yeah. ask questions. Yeah, okay, so um, I want to ask a question mm. which is uh, about time and timelessness. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think a lot of uh, anthropologists who are writing monographs right now are quite concerned about the shelf life. The what? The shelf life yeah. of their books. Yeah. They think that you know, societies and communities they change so quickly that like you know, three years down the line their yeah. books will be completely redundant and yeah. who's going to read it. And, yeah. and so there is so much of pressure on us to think about the fact that okay, what what can we add which is timeless yeah. in our work yeah. so that the, across generations yeah. people would still read it and think that exactly. oh, this has become quite relevant, still yeah. relevant for us. In a way that fiction does yeah. for us. Like yeah. We would still read like yeah. you know, Basa or Chekhov and things. Yeah. You know, it's still relevant for us. Exactly. So what would you think in your work is actually timeless? But I think, but I think, I mean, uh, I, I have these kind of discussions at the museum as well, yeah. And uh, I mean, we, I try to frame it in in various ways. I mean, the small truth, the big truth, because you know, the museum is the the, in my view, the biggest problem for a museum is that it 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 when it delivers the small truths, and the small truth is what you can say for certain. And uh, it's like when you want to. Uh, you know, uh, if you want to pull a woman, it, it helps that you know you have a car and a, and a permanent job, but it's not going to make you. you it's not going to make her marry you. Yeah. So if you want her to marry you, you have to deliver a bigger truth. And uh, and uh, and the same with the museum. And the moment you deliver the bigger truth, you enter the world of fiction, because you enter a world where there's no certainty. Yeah. And um, and. Um, uh, uh, but but if you want people to love you, your museum, you have to deliver this element of fiction, because it's the same. I mean, when you want to pull this woman to marry you, I mean, you have to deliver more than just your your permanent job and your big car. Yeah, uh, and uh, and 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 that is a huge problem for the museum uh, people because. Uh, uh, for some of them, at least, you know, their science or their research ends the moment they have categorized the objects according to, you know, what we can 
for sure, we can say this is an arrowhead from the Stone Age, and that is some, that is a particular type of typology, and then you have a different other type of typology, and here we line it up. They use these arrowheads in the Stone Age. It's not going to make anyone love the Stone Age, you know. So I think in I mean the question you're asking me is to ask me, is your work so big that it will last? Well, I'm not the one to answer that, but I certainly hope so. But that, but I'm, what I'm just pointing to is that if that is true, if that is true, then it has to have an element of fiction built into it, yeah, uh, uh, which delivers uh, uh, this that goes beyond uh, beyond what can factually be uh, uh, be established, yeah. Uh, and uh, but I think that is the uh, that's the condition of of big science. I mean, if you if you take uh, uh, Quantum physics, I mean, that everyone likes to talk about when they talk about crazy science, but a lot of quantum physics, it's speculative theory that has been created in order to explain the natural forces that we know. So, uh, just to give an example, you've probably heard it, parallel universes, yeah? Which is similar to the kind of world that they're describing, these people, but that has been created in order to explain uh, the power of gravity, why it's so relatively weak. No one knows if there are any parallel universes, but it's, a it's, it's, it's a, an attempt to, to make this uh, fictional explanation that makes you know, the laws that we know work. And I think uh, it's actually a pretty good, uh, in a similar way, if you talk about it, think about linguistics, no one have ever spoken proto-European or proto-Germanic. It's a fiction, but it's a fiction needed, you need to create in order to make the evolutionary tree of the Germanic language, it has to end somewhere, so it ends in a fiction called uh, Indo-European. No one has ever spoken it, no one knows if it has ever existed, but it's a precondition. And, there, in, and in other words, fiction is not just the extension of when facts ends, it's at the core of, of what we are doing. And uh, if the work has a presence for the future, there will be a very strong element of that. And that's up for you to, uh, to, to decide, yeah? But I think, uh, but it's pretty important to realize that that's uh, the case, isn't it? I mean, yeah. But I think the worry of the question you are asking, uh, the worry is only for those who describes ethnography in a kind of, in the same way as, you know, the museum people are categorizing arrowheads. They have to worry. Do you know what I mean? Isn't that true? But for, for the rest of us that don't do that, I don't think we have to worry so much because uh, you know there will be an element of fiction that, even if it will seem unfa unfashionable or whatever, will uh, can can trigger something. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Inga wanted to respond to uh, just just as, mm -hmm. I I, I just yeah. I wish we could have another word for it than fiction because yeah. yeah. I totally agree with you. Mm. And what we do mm. in in, in mm. science, whatever mm. we call it. We try to become wiser on the word, mm. and we have guesswork, we have interpretation, mm. we have what I mm. would think what you call wide, yeah, wide yeah. guesses, wide yeah. thoughts, and I'm all for that, but I do think that uh, there is a difference between the genre, what yeah. we do, and what we usually yeah. call fiction, because fiction then you can do yeah. anything out of your imagination. It's and true, here but, it is. Yeah. It is different. But we I think one of the biggest, uh, one of uh, the things that have annoyed me the most being part of academia is the straitjacket given through the genre. Mm. 
I the really keep the genre yeah, but, yeah, here. yeah, but yeah, exactly. That's the problem. But uh, you know, the moment you have uh, you have cracked the code of writing an article, you can deliver them endlessly, because at the end of the day, there's a whole, there's a pure setup that you learn very quickly, and the moment you 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 move out of that uh, straitjacket, you will have to work hundred times harder to get it published. I, believe me, uh, isn't that true? I've tried it, man. And at the end of the day, I mean, I got really bored uh, with academia because of that. Um, uh, because, of course, there is a connection, and we all we should know that there is, a, of course, an intimate connection between form and content. So the thought that, you know, every argument would fit the same uh, format is, you, is absolutely uh, uh, terrible. And but that is the that is the condition of academia that I think is is terrible, you know. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're not worried about fake news at all. No, not at all, actually. And uh, but but uh, relating to the uh, hunter gatherer condition, there's a lot of fake news in hunter gatherer society. <laughs> uh, but, yes, but but the thing is that you actually rely. You have to share everything. You have to share any information. But at the end of the day, you only rely on uh, your experience yeah, in that type of society. It's, it's a result of agricultural society and industrial society where you, where you think that institutions can represent the truth. That, that, now we are back in a situation where you know, everyone can communicate everywhere and everything is shared. And that means that we can't rely on institutions for, 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 uh, for, for any truth. Uh, and thanks God for that, because I mean, think about it. The prototype it of, of the agriculture. Dizzy, not that I'm all that no, but but the but the but the uh, but the archetypical uh, uh, example of an institution representing truth is the local priest that walks around giving all kinds of bullshit, and all the farmer says, "Yes, that must be true because the priest says it," you know. And uh, it's the same with the national museum and so forth. And the national museum says it, therefore it must be true. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but we can't. That cannot be the that cannot be the condition of our lives. Thanks God, you know. I mean, now it's 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 up to uh, the individual. But fake news is only dangerous for a population that uh, lives in ignorance. I think. I mean, uh, yeah. And uh, that should be good news for edu the educational system because uh, that is actually part of why it's valuable, you know, is that uh, it allows people to um, make, uh, you know, critical judgment. So there's uh, a talk uh, for education, but yeah. before we sort of break <laughs> yeah. the university down, we will leave this conversation and, and pose another question. Yeah, I, I was just wondering about something. I think I take a different position than with regards to timelessness. I'm actually yeah. very curious towards the creation of the monography. The creation of? The creation of your monography of the fieldwork itself. And I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit about, I mean, with no regards to big truth, small truth, whatever, but what you kind of figured was the aha moment of your fieldwork. What was the kind of mm. most significant finding or feature? Or mm, yeah. like, could you perhaps elaborate a little bit about yeah. also the creation of your fieldwork yeah. and, and your findings? Uh, yeah. I but I think for me, I mean, the most uh, significant moment uh, was the moment where I realized that they, uh, they imitate this moose in order to attract it. That became the kind of core... 
I mean, the core kind of insight through which rest of the rest of uh, uh, I mean, you get a lot of information when you when you go into the field, yeah, and they are all seem tremendously fragmented until you make some some sort of lens through which you bring it all together, yeah, and of course that is an analytical fiction <laughs> because you are, you create a trajectory through which you bring the world uh, their world together, yeah, uh, but but. Uh, but that uh, that trajectory was when I realized that they actually transformed their bodies in the image of the moose in order to attract it, and and they do attract it. Uh, I mean, so you know, so what seemed as you know mad magic actually had a very uh, tremendously pragmatic, straightforward uh, side to it. Yeah. So uh, so for me that was. Uh, I could have chosen another trajectory, and the and the book would have been a, a completely different one. Yeah, so uh, so I think uh, for me that was uh, very important. And then when I heard these descriptions of uh, you know of everyday shamanism, where the grandmother imitates you know the moose, and the little child has to shoot it, it it was obvious that that was a a continuation of of that particular practice. Yeah, so a lot of things were brought together in around uh, that. Practical activity, uh, yeah. It's a very good question because what I then realized is that this technique is actually uh, is actually developed for reindeer. <laughs> it's not developed for moose. It's the, it's it's a particular technique that developed for reindeer. And when you look, because reindeer were the mi main uh, game until the 1970s, and then there were a lot of forest fires, and the reindeer went out, and the moose came in, and they kept practicing this technique. Although it's not meant for moose, uh, and uh, and is actually not particularly efficient for moose, uh, because moose are colorblind, uh, they are very good hearing, uh, and they are most efficiently hunted with dogs, and uh, so. Uh, and I wrote an article about that, which is like I can't remember what it was called, sort of hunting the elk as if it were as if it was a reindeer or something like that. Because what is really interesting is that they are actually continuing a kind of hunting technique that is not really, I mean, it's not particularly efficient. Um, and that doesn't mean that they don't hunt with, uh, with dogs now and then, but it's still their ideal, yeah? It's their ideal hunting situation. And, uh, and what is at stake, of course, is that in that particular moment where you imitate this animal, the entire cosmos is created, I mean, is rest uh, uh, retained and uh, created and established and continued so if they gave up on that one, it's not only a question of a hunting technique, it's actually a, uh, it's a, it's an entire cosmos, a cosmos uh, that is at stake, yeah? And that is, I use as a criticism uh, of those um, evolutionary accounts of hunting that constantly talks about maximizing resources and so forth, because they are doing a, a technique that is not particularly optimal, you know, and they deliberately do it. Uh, because something else is at stake, you know, than just meat and, and so forth, yeah. Mm. And you also use it to make mm. all of us wiser, mm. or I'm asking you, yeah. don't you do that, in general, on what the subject is, yeah. what, what yeah. personhood is, what yeah, yeah. Yeah. even where, where, would, where, where is the reflection back on, yeah. I yeah. know the answer, but I yeah. want to hear you say it. Yeah. On our ideas about subjecthood yeah. and yeah. personhood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, at in the, a way, you are yeah. you are a classical 
uh, critique of civilization Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, piece of work that yeah. you've done here because yeah. you try and tell us that yeah. our our conceptions of what a subject is, what personhood is, yeah. are limited. Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Via those hunters. Exactly. Exactly. That? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think it's just fascinating. Now I read this book on trees, where you know, and a lot of and I saw this documentary on trees, where a lot of biologists that, or some biologists at least, that study plants and trees, have realized that there is an, there is actually consciousness and there is intelligence, but it's completely distributed. I mean, it's it has just a completely different form. And so when you cut down a tree, all the other trees around. All their uh, roots go to give it uh, sort of, uh, you know, to help it survive, you know. And when uh, they are attacked by beetles, they communicate among each other and stuff like that. I mean, it's just incredible uh, when you, these, uh, some of these studies, what they reveal, yeah. And it makes uh, the world of these people who talk to trees, you know, and uh, it just puts it in a completely different light, you know. I mean, and, and I think... I wouldn't be surprised that over the next 20 years or 50 years, we will realize that consciousness is just, a, you know, the form that we have thought consciousness was is, it's just it has a complete has completely different forms in the animal and plant world, yeah, and 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 I think if you want to take these people seriously, you have to relate it with these kind of things, these kind of insights, yeah. That biologists are, are, are now making, and um, the same goes for, I mean, the boundary between um, culture and uh, language and animals and humans are slipping totally these uh, 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 these years. <laughs> where you know, uh, we you have studied uh, wild monkeys in Japan that start to uh, uh, to clean potatoes before they eat them, and it spreads like uh, uh, you know fire. And you see the creation of culture and nature, you know. The danger is that, that suddenly you will have biologists claiming that culture is, uh, is actually a natural phenomenon, you know. Uh, that's the danger. But I think these kind of insights we anthropologists will have to deal with. And it certainly uh, gives room for taking them seriously when they do these things. But it also confronts us with something fundamental, namely that we have worked with a concept of culture that lies outside, uh, you know, outside biology, you know, and, um, and how are we going to deal with that, I don't know, in the same way as genetics will quite certainly uh, challenge the unity of mankind, which is at the very core of our, uh, our doing. I mean, there's no doubt that, that that challenge will come sooner or later, you know. Uh, like uh, the Aborigines in Australia have 20% Denisova DNA. Denisova is a bone you only found in the Altai Mountains, which is not uh, more than this. But you have uh, you have made the genome, the genome, what is the genome, 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 genome. and uh, it's a, it's most likely a type of uh, Neanderthal, uh, an Asian version. But there's 20% of that. You see that the Lascaux. I knew it, man. It came that Les Cook cave paintings, you know, in in southern Europe. We've always uh, said that it was Homo sapiens sapiens who made these amazing uh, drawings, yeah. And suddenly you find this uh, Neanderthal skull that makes it possible that the Neanderthals created this. And you find cave paintings that must have been created by the Neanderthal. And 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 
and and then you have fragments of knowledge so that uh, so that you know that uh, the Max Planck realized that some aborigine groups don't have conceptions for left, right, up and down, but have fixed coordinates in space. You relate that to dreaming and all this kind of stuff. Suddenly, you have a, a cognitive world that is just fundamentally different. Yeah, not necessarily inferior, just different. Mm. And so, I think this notion of you, the unity of mankind that we have been working with as a basic principle for everything we have done will be fundamentally challenged mm. in the years to come. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anna, thank you, yeah, Inga. Uh, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. This podcast is produced by Anthropologforening Denmark, the Anthropological Association of Denmark. In this episode, you heard the recordings of the monographic Happy Hour event with Professor Rane Villerslev and senior lecturer Inga Sjørslev discussing the insights of Rane Villerslev's monograph, Soul Hunters. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and also stay tuned for future events on the association's Facebook page and gain more insights to the work of Anthropologforening on our website. Og til de danske lyttere. Er du ikke allerede medlem af Antropologforeningen Danmark, så kan du blive det i dag ved at tilmelde dig foreningen på vores hjemmeside. Den finder du på www.antropologforening.dk. Tak fordi at du lyttede med.